For some people, it's always Friday the 13th. And that includes the gentleman that I am on with, as always, Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchek. I am John Evans, and we are here to talk about Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. How are you guys? Doing well, huh? Good. Glad to hear it. So, uh, with this film, I'll just kind of kick it off because it's of personal significance to me in my life because this was the first one that I saw in the theater. It came out uh, within a couple of days of my birthday. There was actually a Friday the 13th on May 13th back in uh, 1988, the year of our Lord. And I was just a wee pup of, I guess, 13 and went to see it. Uh, even then, I I kind of laughed at it. I mean, there was a lot of cheesy elements, but it was just so much fun. Um, and Jason was so freaking cool in this one that I think it really kind of solidified my uh, fandom of the series. How about you guys? Did you Do you remember seeing it for the first time? Where were you? I couldn't tell you where I was the first time I saw it, but I do have very distinct memories of it. Watching it again, I had a lot of nostalgia for it, uh, the characters, and and there were elements. It's interesting. There were elements like uh, the when the Melissa character is seduces the the sort of nerdy writer guy, and midway through goes, ah, well, you know, no, I was just trying to make somebody else jealous. <laughs> I I genuinely thought, and I thought that that uh, that was uh, the the twin with dead fuck in in part four. And as I was watching part four, I kept waiting for her to sort of pop up and be like, "No, like I was just trying to make that other guy jealous." Uh, so it was it was a relief a to see that I didn't just invent that scene out of uh, thin air. Um, but again, a testament to how much I had, how many times I I saw this movie growing up and the way that that certain elements of it sort of bored into my brain. Yeah, this is the first one where I remember being aware of the the director's name and Lara Park Lincoln, the name of our star in the film who's playing Tina. Of course her name's Tina because, you know, we've only had five characters named Tina in Friday the 13th movies already. (laughs) Got to keep recycling those names. But of course, you know, Kane Hodder is a name that was uh, burned into the geek brains of all horror aficionados in the 80s. So, yeah, I mean, this is one where I just really kind of became a student of the film even as a kid. Mike, what was your sort of relationship with this one? I would say that actually this is one of the Friday the 13th that I have uh, the least personal connection to. I remember having seen it more than I actually remembered anything about it. Uh, The only thing that really stuck out in my head was uh, the Jason, you know, at the bottom of the lake, you know, chained to the rock. Uh, That always struck me as a really kind of kick-ass and creepy image. Oh, hell yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a little backstory on this one and how it kind of came to be what the um, thought process was. It's interesting. This is actually during the era when Paramount was kind of courting New Line to begin uh, Freddy vs. Jason. And they were rebuffed by New Line. And at that point, it was a a much healthier franchise on the New Line side of it. The Nightmare films were in their sort of heyday in terms of their cultural influence because just the year before this film, 
in 87, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors came out and did very well at the box office and had you know some decent critical acclaim as well. Meanwhile, we're kind of limping along to Part 7 here in Friday the 13th Land, and uh, it just wasn't as an attractive of a proposition to the people behind Nightmare at that time. So they decided to instead go with Carrie versus Jason. And right. that was very much the thought process. Uh, more or less literally, John Carl Beekler admitted uh, as the director of this film that Tina is a Carrie clone. And that's probably not entirely fair because, you know, obviously she has a very different um, persona than Carrie and isn't as um, well-realized a tortured figure as Carrie White. But um, it was a cool jumping off point to think of this whole project as who can we give Jason as an adversary who will really give him a hard time and be uh, formidable enough to uh, stand up to him and potentially uh, give us a very different kind of conflict between the antagonist and the protagonist. And I think the film delivered on that. Let's just start from the beginning and just see what kind of conversation uh, comes up for us as we move forward. Obviously, the film begins with a narration, and I found out that the narration is read by Crazy Ralph himself from the first two films. Wow. I was wondering about that. Uh, the, you know, he, he gives a little extra juice to uh, the, rhyme, the line, Death Curse. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I was pleased as punch to watch that whole thing because uh, I was like, oh, they've, they've brought this back. And uh, a lot of the clips are from, you know, the, the stronger episodes. Of, and, of course, we get the wheelchair guy going on the stairs. You, you know, uh, I, I dug his narration uh, and I also yeah. dug, you know, that, that he called it, uh, you know, the curse of Crystal Lake, you know, kind of solid, you know, further solidifying the idea that, you know, Jason is an extension of a greater evil that resides within the waters of this lake, you know, uh, you know, and I, mean, it's been there from day one, you know, the, we was telling us about the death curse and Friday 13th part one. It's very cool that they, uh, have him back and he actually dials it down quite a bit. He's not as over the top as he was. Uh, it's actually got sort of a breathy menace to it. He's a little more understated. Uh, so I think it really does kick off the obligatory, Greatest hits previously on Jason montage. As you pointed out in six, uh, Tommy is very culpable in bringing back Jason. And in this one, uh, once again, our protagonist brings back Jason. All these people did not have to die if this chick didn't use her psychic powers to raise him up from the lake. It's all her fault. Let's actually start with uh, her introduction as a little girl and her parents are fighting, and Daddy slaps her mom, and he's apologetic, but he's obviously a drunk, and he chases her out onto the pier on Crystal Lake. I guess they have a nice little vacation home right there on Crystal Lake, and she gets in a boat, and she's going to... I don't know where she's going. She's a little girl. It's child logic. And he comes out, and he's trying to talk her down, and he seems like he's reasonable now. But instead, it's not a you know it's not enough, and she does that thing that kids often do, and she just yells at her dad, "I wish you were dead." And unfortunately, in this case, um, the girl is psychic, and 
it causes the uh, hydraulics to kick in on the on the pier set, and it looks a lot like to me when this uh, length of pier is collapsing <laughs> under the dad, like uh, at Universal Studios theme park. You know, when you go on that ride where it's like the earthquake ride and everything yeah. moves around, but you're actually safe. It's oh, just yeah. it's really obvious uh, special effects there. But um yeah it's uh it, it that's how daddy goes into the drink and we cut to however many years later she's a teenager and guess what she spent time in a mental hospital. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I and again we we have another kind of connection between her and uh Tommy Jarvis. And uh you know a third another weird uh kind of crossover idea is in this case we also have the uh you know, the troubled teen, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in five, it was a full camp of them. But in this case, uh, you know, she's being brought up to Crystal Lake for very similar reasons that Tommy was brought to the camp in five. So I thought it was sort of interesting, too, in terms of the setup and, and her connection to Tommy Jarvis is they're looking for someone to take over some of the mantle uh, in terms of the protagonist. That The setup is very similar to part four when we first meet Tommy, where we have a sort of a family dynamic and this thing going on in one house and next door we have our, our cannon fodder of teenagers uh, partying. Um, right. But so you do have a, a very clearly defined sort of a story and B story in a way that you haven't had in a lot of the previous installments. I felt like this one was trying to return to that. I mean, I, I think that the part six Jason lives has a very different structure. And again, like we talked about it, it, it it's almost more of a traditional action suspense picture. Whereas this one, we're getting back to certain tropes where, you know, you, you have just couples introduced only to have them flirt, maybe fuck and then get killed. Um, and a lot of wandering around calling out each other's names and, you know, a, a sizable chunk of this film is split off from anything that could be described as a plot line. And we're back to kind of the more experiential, if you want to be kind and plotless uh, exploitation, if you want to be harsh. I had John, I had a very different reaction uh, from that. I mean, I think even though it's, it's clumsily handled, I felt like there was a lot of attention paid certainly to the, the protagonist and, and even to Nick, the love interest a little bit, you get more backstory on these characters than you get on almost any character except Tommy Jarvis mm -hmm. um, throughout the franchise. And so even, again, even if it's clumsy, uh, you know, I like the little scene of, of Tina and Nick, you know, well, Nick's not skipping rocks. I guess he's not good enough for that. But, uh, you know, hurling rocks into Crystal Lake and, um, uh, you know, and, and giving us, well, you know, I, I ran with a bad crowd, but uh, my dad threw me out and now I'm in night school. And like, in a in a a better movie that would you know that would ultimately pay off in some way, um, but I appreciated knowing who he was a little bit and and uh, uh, you know the flashback to her and her father again it's it's I agree with you about the effects and everything else, but what final girl have we ever had this much information about? Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I my, one of the things we talked a lot in part six about how it was competently. You know, it's 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 a, a remarkably competent film. It's yeah. well directed. It's you know the things are are informed. This felt in some ways like a competently written film. Um, yeah. I agree. I mean, you know, you can't get into too much with the teenagers, but um, 
there was some attention paid to to character development. That, oh I, yeah, I well, no, I mean, I'm trying to say actually that there's a dichotomy in this film, and mm-hmm. half of the film is more like following Tommy in part six, and it is the the A story of it. You know, Tina's story is quite strong, but then I would say you know about half of the movie roughly is the sort of nonsense, you know, where we're just like dropping in on these characters uh, who are fodder, as you said, you know? So, I mean, I think it's, it's trying to do both. And for me, you know, I don't want it to sound like I don't like this movie. It works for me. It's just that this, this to me is both the best and the worst of Friday the 13th in one film. But even when it's at its worst, I find it very entertaining. And we'll get into that as we move forward. But like it, it, it's really quite funny to me. This one is. And in, in six, like throughout, I, you know, I was kind of making fun of it for looking like a music video, but uh, you know, that was a, actually a pleasing aesthetic and uh, in, in juxtaposition with this one. I mean, this one seems kind of murky uh, in terms of its visual palette. Uh, you know, uh, there there isn't that sense that the filmmakers are like looking at every character and every beat and going, how can we make this like a little cooler? How can we turn the beat a little bit? How can how can we make it a little more interesting? You know, perfect example being um, there's one girl who Jason stabs through the eye with like a party horn because yeah. it's uh you know it's someone's birthday party, and in six they would have done something with that. He would have shoved it down her throat and she would have made squeaky na- squeaky sounds, you know, stuff like that. And in this one, he just kind of jams in her eye and now she's dead. Well, when it comes to the kills, unfortunately, I looked into this. The MPAA really uh, had a heavy hand. Uh, By now, they thought of these movies as torture porn. And they were just ruthless, uh, sending this back with an X rating every time. So I've even seen some footage, like on the Blu-ray, and it's available on, on YouTube, of what these kills were actually supposed to be. And the amount of makeup and, you know, gruesomeness and various things, like it may not have been super clever, but it definitely would have packed more of a punch if they hadn't been cut to ribbons by the MPAA. Because like when that that girl's boyfriend gets his head crushed, they actually had the effect rigged so that he could crush his head. Jason could crush his head down to the size of a walnut and just blood and stuff. His brains are just pouring out of it as he reduces the guy's skull to, you know, in his, in his palms. So that would have been, you know, a lot more impactful than what we, ultimately see but i agree with you there are a couple real groaners where you know he obviously just sticks the knife in the guy and he goes oh and falls down in front of the refrigerator especially in the early goings i mean there are several kills in which uh it's jason walks up to a guy or, or a victim and just kind of hits them and they fall down and now they're dead and uh you know and and every time i would see one of those because i'd just gotten off of watching six I'm like, oh, well, I mean, they're, they're going to find some cool thing to do with this, and they're just going to don't. And it's like, nah. you know, uh, it's interesting that you bring up the MPAA, though, because uh, the other thing that I noticed that was significant in contrast to 6 was in 6, they almost completely removed all the sexuality, except mm-hmm. for one scene, and even then it's played for laughs. And in this one, they turned the sexuality spigot all the way back up 
So we even get like a partial full frontal again. Yep. Lot, in 1988. Yeah, yeah. Lots and lots of scenes of uh, the teenagers enjoying sex. Uh, Vic, like you pointed out, there's kind of a callback to four where we have, uh, you know, multiple elements of kind of, uh, you know, the females are jockeying for male attention. You know, uh, you know, between Robin and the nerdy girl are trying to get the stoner guy. And then, uh, you know, like all the girls are trying to get with Nick, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 interesting that we see these echoes throughout, you know, and it's nice to have the sexuality back, you know. Before we um, move forward, I just wanted to mention the opening theme I thought was very cool. It's jangling and minimalist and kind of ahead of its time it almost feels like a little like Blair Witch or something you know well, you know the other thing that they did in six that they brought forward into this one is uh in six they started introducing Symphony Fantastique to the uh the soundtrack and in this one they kept it but not quite so heavily handed it's actually like more of a light motif if uh you know I mean as the characters are like say walking across a room they can hear it mm. I noticed in the in the soundtrack and I was curious if you guys picked up on this I heard echoes of uh, the Shining sound, uh, uh, score in, yeah. in a couple of scenes. And I thought, I wondered if that was a conscious decision because we're dealing with another psychic, uh, you know, in a remote location or something. Uh, but that, that struck me. That's a uh, symphony fantastique. And uh, uh, I mean, they, they played it like really obviously and heavily in sex. And mm-hmm. in this one, it, it was just more of a, you know, a, a little touch here and there and very quiet. Yeah. Well, we have a new uh, composer on this one. I mean, there's some of the Manfredni uh, <laughs> stuff. But uh, anyway, so by now, Jason is a full-fledged boogeyman. Um, you know, we, we've completely left any sense of him being alive behind. I love that you can see uh, exposed spine on his back. Mm-hmm. You can see the damage that the propeller on the boat did to his jaw in the last one. And it, you know, there's a big chunk of the side of the hockey mask that's missing. Bone is exposed in his jaw. And yet, interestingly, this Jason breathes a lot. Yeah, (laughs) that completely pulled me out because, you know, if there's the other, uh, you know, another cool thing that Six did was they nailed the fact that he's a giant zombie. You know, he really felt like there was a patience, a solidity to him. Uh, you know, you would shoot him with a gun and he wouldn't even react to it. Whereas in this one, he actually acted like the most alive that I've seen him act yeah. in a while. You know, um, you know, there's a lot. He breathes a lot. If he gets hurt, he groans. Yes. Uh, if he's put in a danger, like he kind of flinches around, like when she's trying to drop the, the ceiling thing on him. And he's kind of like, oh. Uh, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would say that he, like he's the most actively engaged in what's going on with him uh, since like say four, but it it makes no sense though because he's <laughs> he's even more of a zombie than he was the last movie. So yeah, so so every time he does that shit, I'm like, this is laughable. I mean, I I agree with the sort of nonsensical nature of it. I think that there's a there's a reason that Kane Hodder you know, enters the, the, the mind when you think of Friday the 13th, he gives a really interesting performance as Jason Voorhees. That's almost, that's, I mean, that's almost the, the problem with it is that this doesn't call for a performance and you have someone who's acting with this, this sort of great physicality. I did have a thought. I, I meant to bring this up when, 
she resurrects him from the the water you know she's trying to resurrect her father and i thought you know here for the first time we have this this completely unrelated tragedy around uh uh crystal lake like what if the what is is the lake just littered with other bodies you know like if she just kept bringing people up and it was the wrong guy and she went oh shit all right sorry no It was interesting that you can see this is a really subtle little detail, but when the little girl leaves the house, I believe there is a calendar. It says uh, Friday the thirteenth. Yeah, yes. I saw that. Yes, yeah. I rewound I, it just to just to check that that detail. That kind of you know suggests that uh, the lake you know has its hand in these events, and when uh, this incident occurs on this fateful day it's that much more likely to go south in a lethal and you know way that will last and will affect you know we we will contribute ultimately to jason coming back uh quite directly yeah you know let's talk about the psychology of of those three characters for a moment because when they're introduced dad is drunk and he smacks the mom. And apparently this is not the first time because they're like, you're drunk again. You hit mom again. You know, and uh, he's obviously this uh, alcoholic uh, wife beater evil guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, when he comes storming out, I mean, you fully expect like a, you know, a dump truck and a wife beater, you know. And uh, it's it's kind of hilarious that he's, like in like a sweater vest, he's got like a sweater around his. Yeah, I mean, he he looks like this really preppy dadish cut type dude, which I guess makes him that much more evil in a way. But mm-hmm. it's weird that uh, mom and Tina spend the entire movie like completely mooning all over this guy. Like there's multiple scenes in which uh, Doctor Cruz uh, notices that like the entire room is festooned with photos of this guy. Um, She's completely bent out of shape with guilt that uh, she inadvertently killed him. You know, this that, and everything else. I'm like, really? This guy? You know? It, it, no, <laughs> you're, you're sort of thinking about this in movie terms. I mean... No, I'm thinking you, about it in human terms. I, I, you know, I'm well, Mike, I mean, let, let's face it. People still love their family members even if they've done bad things. I mean, it sure, can be a very... Right. They're not like, ah, good riddance. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I mean, they act like he's Mr. Perfect is what it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is he dies because he's drunk again and smacking his family around again, you know, and then they spend the entire rest of the movie going, oh, poor dad, I'm so sorry. It's like, well, really? I mean, she did kill him. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it. It, it doesn't. He doesn't need to be a saint for her to feel guilt about what happens. I mean, I kind of like that element that you know she does something very human uh, that you know kids do, and it comes true. You know, she wishes death on her father, and it happens. And that would be a very difficult thing to live with. He, he, he does get a re- redemptive beat at the end, but we'll get around to that. Yes, yes. I also want to note that the poster art for this. Have you guys seen this image of the knife with the dual face and on one side it's the hockey mask and on the other it's her face the sort of glowing eyed uh telekinetic girl face and yeah. uh it's, it's it's a nice little design yeah after that we've got uh the introduction of one of my favorite characters dr cruz oh <laughs> uh, yeah the extraordinarily unctuous doctor <laughs> yes that is cruz 
bad bad news cruise and he says <laughs> early on when they walk into the house it's him and mrs shepherd and he says this is where it all started well, well, well. <laughs> it's so inappropriate considering that what started was all bad as far as we know. <laughs> He's just such an asshole that he can't even like have the proper amount of gravitas or you know sensitivity uh in what what he's doing he's just practically like rubbing his palms together oh, i can't wait to induce some telekinetic phenomena in terms of final girl I and mean, she gets a lot of juice in terms of backstory and uh, character development but she's also uh you know for a female protagonist really really over the top in terms of her emotions i you know the idea is like uh you know be, her being in a heightened emotional state triggers the telekinesis so, you know, she spends most of the movie in a state of uh, screeching heebie-jeebies. <laughs> yes, she does. But I think she's a pretty solid actress. I mean, I think she sells that stuff. It, she, she's not wooden. She's not weirdly uh, off-key, you know? Like, I, I kind of buy her whenever she's emoting. Yeah, I, you know, Tommy was supposed to be, you know, kind of a basket case in, uh, in Part 5. and oh, uh, you know, just I, so bad. Yeah. Yeah, he, he really that by just being sullen and kind of glowering at people. Whereas uh, she, like, you know, I, I can kind of get when Melissa is making fun of her for being a nut. Like, yeah, I mean, she's got that sensibility. And, like, I bring her up right now because we find midway through the movie that uh, Dr. Cruz has actually been basically fucking with her to, you know, to try to pull out her telekinesis as much as possible. So it's not that she's you know, so completely around the bend, it's that her doctor has been poking her with a stick for years and uh, holds the threat of uh, of the of the asylum over yeah. her head. You know, it's like, well, if it doesn't work out here, then she could be committed for the rest of her life. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, Vic, what did you think of uh, the psychiatric practices that Dr. Cruz uses on his patient, Tina? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think one of the, one of the, failings of the script is that they give that away almost at the get-go uh, i mean it would have been interesting to have a little ambiguity about dr cruz and is you know is this really good therapy that he's that he's trying to uh, help her with or does he have some sort of ulterior motive his ulterior motive is clear almost from the, the first scene when he's shouting at her to get her to move the whatever the little thing is that he sets on the, on the, the desk. The, the matchbook. Yes, the matchbook, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. He paints himself almost immediately as, as a bad guy. I did find it interesting the way the cat gets out of the bag is uh, mom puts in the videotape, which he has gone back. Not only has he videotaped these, <laughs> these psychokinetic experiences, but he's gone back and voiced, oh, voiced them over. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I was uh, deeply entertained uh, when she removed the VHS tape from the giant clamshell box. <laughs> well, yeah, you once removed Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven. Um, you can't tell if Cruz is inciting Tina purely because he knows that he has to get her riled up there, or if he's just such a dick that he's genuinely angry at her for not performing on cue with that yeah. matchbook. Well, I mean, needless to say, he's a he's just a dreadful psychiatrist. Yes, uh, he really is. <laughs> you you want to recommend him one star on Yelp for Doctor? Yeah, <laughs> one star. I think that there was there was room for a little more intrigue in terms of the plot there, and they they really missed the boat on that. 
Um, I do think, however, one of the things that I thought was interesting is when we've talked about uh, creating characters as the franchise goes on that we actually want to see die, that's mostly taken the form of characters being sort of annoying uh, or, you know, or, or pathetic or, Jesus, just get this guy at the screen or whatever. Here we actually have them creating truly despicable characters uh, that you that you really want to see die, and I think you see it in Doctor Cruz and in Melissa, uh, mm-hmm. who is just needlessly cruel. It's a it's a it's a change, I think, in the way that they've that they've approached the characters. It's gone a little deeper from a writing perspective, and it's tied more to actual narrative elements, especially with with Cruz. Mm-hmm. Uh, the but yeah, he is why I like him so much as a character is exactly that. Like you are just desperate for this guy to get his i mean he he is so odious and i think that he also is a good actor i mean he has these moments that yeah. are he's asked to play really strange things um but he always you know he's credible and he, he's always doing something like with his expressions and his reads on things that are kind of you know like that ambiguity of you, you're always wondering what he knows and what he doesn't know and what his plan really is. I mean, we don't ever get it explicitly, but I, I suppose, you know, he's going to publish this amazing report that will get him on at that point, like the Phil Donahue show or something. I don't know where <laughs> he's yeah. exposing, you know, real telekinetic ability and he's going to have a bestseller and, you know, get laid and uh, be rich and famous. This will get me on Carson. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I I, I I did I did laugh out loud when uh, he grabbed uh, Tina's mom and shoved her at uh, Jason as he was pursuing the two of them through the woods. Mm-hmm. Oh well, was... yeah. I mean, if you want to jump ahead to that, I, I don't want to get to that part of the plot. But he he really? like literally uses Mrs. Shepard as a human shield. That is the degree of moral fiber that this guy has. <laughs> <laughs> well, he gets. I think he gets some credit because if if I was writing this character and wanted to make him as despicable as possible, I would at least have him try to get into mom's pants as well. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's, yeah. There's no, there's, you know, I mean, there's no sexual tension. He's not trying to abuse his position uh, to to that degree, and certainly the the potential was there. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. To be fair, Mrs. Shepherd is not exactly milfy. Well, and there was like, and there, there there was a weird dynamic in that house, though, because I mean, they're there to do like really hardcore, you know, therapeutic work. But uh, you know, he's very controlling and weird. Like uh, when Nick invites her over to the party, yeah, uh, you know, he's like, uh, I, you know, that's not part of the plan. You know, I, I you know, basically, he doesn't want to let want her to go. Uh, he wants her to just stay in the house and do nothing. <laughs> he's a wet blanket. He's everything bad. So uh, the Curse of Crystal Lake uh, strikes again, and by that I mean if you're driving in this area, you'd better expect your car to break down. So uh, the guest of honor and his girlfriend that the teenagers are throwing this party for, surprise party, they don't make it because they break down on the side of the road. So once again, we get uh, car trouble in a Friday the 13th movie. So that's always a, a staple of the genre. In this one, though, uh, I was uh, also amused by the fact that uh, these two characters end up camping because they've broken down and uh, they're walking up to the uh, Crystal Lake where all of their friends are waiting for them. And the guy just kind of gets tired. 
he just, yes. he, just, he just goes, nah, let's just camp here and then we'll come and get the car in the morning. It's like, and they even pass those signs. It's, it's only five miles, man. Right. That's it. It's like, oh, there's so much ludicrousness in this movie. Uh, things of that nature. Like I'll point out a few others along the way where we're back to characters just doing bizarre things that don't compute at all with the last time we saw them. And it's, yeah. you know, there's lots of illogic. Yeah, that that was my other like main takeaway from watching this movie was uh you know we're kind of back to uh not quite as bad as 5 but you know kind of within the strike zone of you know characters just constantly stay say and do things that just don't make any sense at all. I mean, they they just never really seem quite human. You know they kind of right. I, I, they'll they'll say things and you're just like why would you who would say that? You know, it's, you know Yes, so, plenty of yeah. that, plenty of that. So Tina sees psychic flashes of uh, Jason's kills in this film. He see she sees this one with the couple, and then later she sees her mother being killed. And the interesting thing about it is that like she sees this happening like in whatever room she is in, rather than just you know getting a vision of the time and place where it happened. And uh, I thought that was you know kind of creative. We haven't really seen it handled that way, but it makes it much more jarring for her and by extension the audience. Uh, I will say that uh, you know let, let's use this uh, scene in particular to point out one of the best kills in the entire series is the sleeping bag girl. That's yeah. a bit later, but yes, absolutely, absolutely. That is, there's a second group of campers in this film. Um, like uh, the, the the one that you're talking about, it's a whole other couple <laughs> later. Oh, on. they are. Yeah. Okay. I, I, all right. I, I I got confused. I, I thought it was birthday boy and the other guy. Oh, no, I mean, that's how many ridiculous couples get killed in this movie. (laughs) Right. We should note, and I'm going to jump way ahead, but we will get a throwback to this, I believe, in Jason X. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's maybe the greatest moment in the whole franchise. So I don't want to I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, But yeah, that, that, that I saw that and I went, wait a minute, I've seen that before. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, Tina finds the tent spike or whatever it was Jason used to kill Michael, the birthday boy. That's what it is. Dude, I spent the entire movie with them. I and it becomes like a big plot point. It turns into, you know, Colonel Mustard in the library with the, with with the weird, because he kills the guy with the spike and then, you know, Dr. Cruz is hiding it. And I think there's two of them. There is. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I, I spent the entire movie going, what the fuck is that thing? <laughs> well, Vic, and, uh, you're it, the big it, camper. It, it, it certainly does look like a, a the, the, the tent spikes of our generation are, are probably a little more sophisticated. But, uh, <laughs> but that is what it appears to be. I could not figure out why Jason showed up and apparently jammed it through the, the door frame uh, and then left. Um, that <laughs> yeah. was one of the more inexplicable moments. It was. It was. So basically, yeah. Jason, let's just go with the chronology here. He climbs out of the lake. Uh, oh, by the way, we have another instance of not killing someone who's unconscious because she's standing yeah. right there. Mm-hmm. She faints, and he wanders past her off five miles from the lake. He's just roaming the woods. Then he kills those two five miles from the lake immediately goes back to the lake and the house to ram a different spike through the doorframe than the one he used to kill the guy in the woods. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yep. 
I, I, I was also amused uh, when uh, that guy is chopping wood with a machete, and uh, I was thinking, who the fuck chops wood with a machete? And it's like, oh, because they wanted to get the machete in there, and they thought, maybe he's chopping wood with it. And it's like, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is what the movie's going to be. <laughs> right. Which is, which is equally absurd because, and, and this is something I've come to watch for and, and, and appreciate, you have to set up all the weapons that Jason gets. And he shows up periodically with things that I don't believe we've ever seen. Uh, I mean, you know, the... the oh, the... that's why there's a shed. That's why they have that shed full of all of those weapons and implements. Did I, I, I must have missed that then. I apologize, which is sad because I watched it twice. But Well, it's, it, it isn't very well established. I mean, they don't cut and show, like, all these little inserts of, like, the, the chainsaw thing, which I believe is called the Bushmaster 5000. Um, yes, yes. But when he kills the nerdy girl, uh-huh. uh, I think that is where he, he gets the cachet of various tools that he's going to okay. end up using. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of the nerdy girl, uh, she's got a set of lungs on her. Uh, she was yeah, <laughs> one, one of the better screamers that, that I've encountered in, in, in the series. I, and when she yeah. screams, I know it was nuts. I'm just yeah. like, wow, she, she is uh, our, our little scream queen right there. Yeah, and she was on one of the special features saying that she was very disappointed that her kill was much, much bloodier uh, originally, and it didn't end up making it into the final cut, but uh, she was sad about that. She really uh, got into the spirit of this. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, she's screaming her head off, and then, uh, you know, Jason punches through the wall like Robocop to get at her, and, you know, and, uh, all kinds of good stuff. I'm sad Although, to say, though, that Melissa, the actress uh, who plays Melissa, mm-hmm. is no longer with us. Really? No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently she died in 2009. Uh, don't know the backstory on it, but uh, that's a shame. Yeah. I, I did appreciate her death, though, because uh, when Jason comes through the door and whacks her in the head with an axe, I thought, oh, boy, you know, it's, it's going to be another of these boring kills of kind of stuffed into this movie but then he picks her up and throws her yeah. over the tv i'm just like oh, okay good yeah right. i love that <laughs> apparently that one we were gonna see you know the axe is splitting her face through but her eyes are still moving on either side of the axe blade is how they had that gag and that would have wow. been cool i kind of love that character she's so like lusty in this very arch and smug and yet, you know, weird way. Like, she she is not a normal person. It's not that she's just hot and she knows what she wants. Like, she is kind of a freak <laughs> yeah, in her own I, right. I, I, I think uh, there's a lot to be said when she's telling the other characters the story about how uh, she got her pearl necklace. Yeah. You know, it's like, Daddy said that I was the mo- his perfect little girl and gave this to me. I, I was the perfect daughter. I'm just like, this is a weird family, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, she says, uh, Tina comes in looking for Nick, and she asks Melissa, where's Nick? And and Melissa goes, he's around. Dip? (laughs) (laughs) Offers her some dip? (laughs) What? (laughs) And then the nerdy girl says, she's like that with everybody, except boys. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And then she says, about Nick, she says, he'll show... And then finally, Nick comes down from upstairs after her Tina leaves. So he was upstairs the whole time. Tina is yeah. searching the house looking for him, and no one knows where he is. 
Yeah, there, there, there's, there's a ton of baffling uh, stagings in this entire movie. Uh, like, like no one hears anybody scream in this whole movie. Uh, I mean, someone could get murdered like outside of a van. If you're inside oh. the van, then you're soundproof. You know. I do want to say, to me, the the my favorite character beat with Melissa is when when she's really hurling herself at Nick, uh, and and says, you know, well, all all's fair in love and war, and he says, Melissa. I don't even like you. <laughs> yeah. And she's yeah. she something like that's got nothing to do with it. Yeah. 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 And she immediately uh, grabs uh, the sci-fi nerd guy to try to get Nick jealous. And Nick yeah. just doesn't even pay attention at all. <laughs> he just turns around and leaves. Yeah. And the I, fact I that she like is totally blind to the fact that he has zero interest in her, in her is like, it, it kind of makes her intrepid in a way. You well, know? but I, I don't think she's blind to it. I mean, I think that that's part of what's attracting her. Oh, is, right. You know, the, right. the, the more, that's what I mean is, is when he says, I, you know, I don't even like you. And she's like, yeah, I don't care. Like I, we're going to, we're, this is still going to happen and I'm going to make it happen. Well, uh, there's a line where, uh, I think it looks like it was cut or something, you know, but you, you get this beat where he is going to run after Tina when she runs out and Melissa stops him and says something like, let me tell you something about women, which it's very strongly implied, like don't chase after her if you uh-huh. want her to like you. When uh, one more dumb thing that just sticks in my craw that I have to mention, when uh, that spike is removed by Doctor Cruz from the door frame, and there's a very visible hole in the wood where the spike was lodged, and she's Tina's literally rubbing her fingers through the hole, but she still is kind of acting like, "Well, maybe it was just a delusion of mine." It's like, "Well, yeah. something put the big hole in the frickin' door frame." <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> this whole movie is full of shit like that. Yeah, and uh, uh, let's briefly touch on the uh, the other love triangle that I actually found. Uh, a, a little bit more engaging uh, between Robin, the nerdy girl, and there's like a stoner dude yes. who, again, is also like kind of a standoffishy kind of guy. Like he's not, you know, pursuing the chicks at all. He's way more interested in just kind of getting his 420 on, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, but Robin is is a for me, she was the best looking girl in this movie. Uh, she was just a really, really attractive redhead, and. Um, you know, she seems very much, uh, you know, she's got this friendship with the nerdy girl that, that seems like the classic setup in, that you see in movies where uh, two characters kind of grew up and one of them, you know, got more mature faster. The other one is a little more childlike still. And there's yeah. kind of a tension there. You know, the nerdy girl is, is still, I mean, they're still friends, but like the one of them is just like, now she's into like drugs and getting laid. And the other one is, is kind of, you know, trying to catch up a little bit. Yeah, but even that is sort of weird and artificial because, like, she starts giving uh, the redhead static over the weed when she's been gaga over this guy herself. And, like, is it a surprise to you that the guy smokes weed? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it was just more who she's going to smoke the weed with. I, I, I think oh. that's where she was coming from. But, uh, I mean, you know, for her, like, you know, the, the redhead, you know, uh, Robin, I actually says something, like, really shitty to her, like, uh, you need a touch of honey. Yeah. You know, and uh, she feels bad and goes and makes herself. You know, she spends uh, an hour making herself up, only to. And and here's another dipshit fucking thing is, uh, the guy that she's interested in is in the house, but she goes off somewhere and makes herself up, and then she goes into the woods and yeah. is calling for him. And no. so she's like, Charlie, Charlie. It's like nuts. It's, it's so house. ludicrous. David, David. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like David. 
David. And it's like, no, you, he was, he's in the house. You were, you saw him there. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's so little attention to detail at the narrative level when, when yeah. stuff like that's happening. But, you know, one thing I did like about the script is for me, there's consistently decent one-liners throughout this film. I mean, and it's decent yeah. in sort of a, you know, non-sequitur, weird, off-kilter way, but I just find some dialogue really entertaining. Like, now let's get to the other camping couple. The one in the sleeping bag, she says, come on, you big hunk of a man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And John, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, I mean, uh, on an overall level, uh, it's wildly incompetent, but it does have like these weird spikes of like the, the characters just throw out like great lines at each other yeah. uh, on a fairly frequent level. You know, yeah. uh, I, I like when the girl calls her angry boyfriend squid face. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's got these little quirks that I find really, really entertaining. So when Jason goes after the girl in the sleeping bag, she actually pulls it up over her face like a little kid hiding under the covers. But in this situation, Jason doesn't go for it. You know, it's like it's too late. She's already screaming. She's not asleep. He uh, drags that sleeping bag out of the tent. And in one quick, violent impact of the sleeping bag against the tree, does her in. It opens up uh, when she hits the ground. He drops the sleeping bag unceremoniously, and she's staring out with stone-cold, dead eyes, kind of bloody. And it really works. It's, it's, we've mentioned it in passing. One of the better kills, certainly, of this movie. After that, basically, we, we've got you know more kills, like the rich guy and his girlfriend are going to go skinny dipping together, and we get another great line where she's referencing that what drew him her to him was his enormous, beautiful wallet. And then she yeah. has the line, the bulge in your pants keeps calling my name. Sandra, <laughs> yeah. Sandra, yeah. take me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's really funny, that girl. Yeah. Uh, and, and then she gets nude. So it's just like, I hey, man, she's she's hot. She's nude. She's funny. What could you ask for? Yeah, even when she does that, you know, table for two line out there, you know, what do you need a uh, formal yeah. invitation? A yeah. party, party of two. That's what, how she phrases it. Yeah, yeah she, she's got a very short amount of screen time, but she definitely makes the most of it. Totally but agree. I mean, it creates this, for, for this film, a dynamic that we've seen before, but hasn't been quite as inexplicable, where when I look at this group of people, I cannot imagine that any of them are friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, we have a, we have a rich dickhead and his, uh, uh, gold digging girlfriend, a stoner, a shy girl, you know, just kind of a, a, a sex pot. Who's also a real bitch. Um, you know, they, none of these people have anything in common. Like, it I just, think they do. There's, there's one thing they have in common. They're all very bougie. You know, like they all seem to come from at least a modicum of money. It's kind of the way I, I saw it. Like, you know, everybody's dressed kind of, you know, preppy. And like even the stoner guy and the and the writer, you know, like you have the feeling they're indulged and they get to be like that. But they're not from the wrong side of the tracks at all. And the one guy, Nick, who, you know, seems to come from a different background. And I, I really think this is intentional. You know, he's the one that is not rich. But the reason he's there is simply because of his cousin. So it's a blood relation that uh, puts him in this group. 
Yeah, I, I did notice that Nick is consistently the most sane and decent guy there. Uh, where where everyone else are kind of, is kind of uh, like I you know almost bizarre in their uh, in their uh, activities. Like he's the only guy who actually read the Human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he's a, he, uh, I think the actor is very good. He's he's continued to work a lot since uh, since doing this, uh, which makes a difference. He's, I think, our uh, our strongest. Uh, what would we call the the last boyfriend character since Paul? Right. Uh, he's yeah. interesting. He's, you know, he keeps his wits about him. He listens to Tina when you know more certainly than anyone else does about the the impending danger, uh, and gets to survive as a result of it. You know. Yeah, I did notice that late in the game, um, he's consistently worried about his friends. You know, when finally it's clear that people are getting killed. And Jason is running around and he believes in her. Uh, you know, he keeps coming, going, you know, we have to get my friends. We have to get my friends together. We have to get uh, all of our friends out of here. You know, he's honestly concerned for the welfare of others. Like, he's not just jumping in the car and taking off. And it's not because they're really friends because he, he has a line where he basically says they're not his friends. You know, it's just that he is a decent guy, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there is a beat, though, where it, it's funny. And I think that this is perfectly understandable. But when Tina is unspooling her story to Nick while he's throwing the rocks into the lake and she's telling him that she's been in the mental hospital and she's responsible for her dad's death and all this heavy shit, you can kind of see him weighing it a little bit. Like how bad do I really need to get into this girl's pants? Is it worth it? (laughs) You know, she's, she's flat up telling him, you know, I'm, I'm trouble. I'm, I'm, I'm a mess, you know, stay away from me. And you meanwhile, know, and Melissa is spying on them the whole time. It's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's very strange. I agree. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Melissa yeah. is crouching in the woods watching them. <laughs> yeah, in, in her super pastel outfit that works as perfect camouflage. Yeah, but that's what I mean. She's a. She, there's something interesting about her as a character. Like I that's, agree. That's how completely like this is the only thing that she wants in the world is to prove that she can get Nick to sleep with her. Uh, and she's willing to take her pastel outfit out into the the, the swamp of, of Crystal Lake to spy on him with this other girl, including, I mean, then you think the way that she antagonizes the girl is really about her just trying to get the upper hand in this relationship. Yeah, I, yeah. Vic, I, I, I completely agree. I, I think you're absolutely right about this. It has nothing at all to do with any actual human emotion. She just wants to nail the hot guy, you know, because I, I, I did notice that. I, and apparently uh, Nick is a very good looking dude because when he pulls up, like all the female characters like react in, in a really big way to him, you know, and kind of consistently do so throughout Act One. Uh, well, it's it's bad directing like you were talking about uh, earlier, Mike, because when they're cutting together that sequence where Melissa is looking over her sunglasses at them and she says, I hadn't noticed. And the inference is that she hadn't noticed Nick, but of course she had the way it's cut together. It's kind of hard to tell if she's scoping him out or Tina or, or what it's just not a good juxtaposition of shots. Like they should have had him, you know, bending over or something or looking, you know, model like or something to just, you know, clue in that he's being ogled there. And it's just not well directed. Yeah. uh, Uncomfortably short shorts in that scene. I noticed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The entire thing where uh, Tina kind of spills her, uh, her suitcase and he, uh, you know, in a very gentlemanly fashion rushes over to help. 
and she's just nothing but staticky with him, you know. And uh, you know, he accidentally picks up her her panties, which yeah. I, 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 you know, he's just kind of shoveling clothes and just grabs that, and uh, she kind of reacts big to it. And and again, it's like you know, the script wants a beat where like at first they start off, you know, uh, in a negative fashion, then they're gonna come around, but it just doesn't have the wherewithal to sell it. No, I thought that was cute, actually. I, I like the um, mistakenly handing her panties thing, and she's like, well, thanks, you've been a big help. I mean, I, I thought that actually played pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's funny, but I'm just like, all right, well, yeah, sorry for trying to help you. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> what the hell, yeah, man? but she was <laughs> flustered. I mean, I could understand. She's really embarrassed there, and it just keeps getting worse. You know, I, got I, I don't know. Okay. And she totally I forgives got... him when she, uh, when she realizes that he's washed her little uh, blouse or whatever and brought it back to her. Like, he's won her over with that gesture. Right. Very true. Eddie, the writer, has some choice lines, and I just want to highlight uh, two of my yeah, favorites. <laughs> so he's wrapping himself from within streamers <laughs> from this elaborate party. Because, you know, we all... We go all out for each other on their, on our birthdays, but uh, I didn't see any streamers and banners for my birthday, but apparently they cleaned out the birthday store uh for this event so he's John, you're, you're still alive so <laughs> that's know, true we didn't want to call too much attention to ourselves you know uh, for, for, I, our, wait, that... for our listeners benefit it's it was uh we celebrated john's birthday uh the the night before recording this um yep. so that's hence hence the lack of streamers and banners you know, one of you know, I, I, I again, like I wasn't super thrilled with the general look of the movie and how like a lot of the scenes kind of were directed or pulled together. But one of the best uh, shots in the whole movie for me was when Jason comes to the door. He's in full zombie mode, uh, and the room is filled with these these colorful balloons. So he's yeah. kind of framed by the balloons, and it's like yeah. I, I mean, that was like uh, that was cool. I liked that a lot. I thought it was neat. Actually, I mean, I would say whenever Jason is on the screen, I'm usually thinking that's a good shot. I like where he's positioned. I like how he's lit. You know, like I think they handled Jason very well in this that's film. Yeah. There's a sense in which he's present in this movie in a way that I I felt like he wasn't in some of the other films. Yeah. Which is to say that when characters are, are however stupidly wandering out of the woods, I mean, I remember this distinctly with Maddie before her death. Jason doesn't like he doesn't come out stabbing. He appears and then there's a chase and there's but there's that moment when there's a there's a distance between Jason and the victim and they see him and he sees them and they have to you know they they do it with uh, uh the rich guys well I want to say Russ Russell the rich guy um where he's you know trying to take off his pants to to uh, join his his gold digger girlfriend in the in the in Crystal Lake, who's named Sandra because we we haven't had enough characters named Sandra in the series uh, yeah. yet. It yeah. wasn't mm-hmm. Tina, no. Uh, Terry, no. <laughs> Terry, yeah. Sadly, uh, no Terry in this yeah. one. But he looks up and Jason is there, and he then falls over and sort of you know scrambles backward, and we get a little bit of build up. Maddie's the better example because we get that that terrific scene in the shed. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's Jason's, Jason's there. There's there instead of, instead of him looking up, Jason's there and he gets the, uh, you know, machete in the face. There is this chase. There's a follow. There's a, there's a sense that he is 
present and has to chase these people down that, that makes a difference in this film. Yeah, great point. And I think that that is part of the transition process from Jason being this sort of like the shark in Jaws to being the star of these movies. And now, you know, watching him work is a great part of the entertainment experience. So, of course, he's going to be on screen a lot because he's the star. And that is a far cry from the early films where, you know, up until the very, maybe Act 3 even, he's more just like the hand of the Reaper or something that you glimpse but you never get a good look at. John, it's interesting that you mentioned Jaws because that was one of the other things that, that really jumped out at me. There is that scene when Sandra uh, is is naked in the water. Mm-hmm. She holds her she must hold her breath for an extraordinary amount of time because she goes under the water and Jason appears, chases Russ, kills him, and then gets into the water before she comes up. Yeah. There are no, shots yeah. of her underwater naked skinny dipping her legs and then him grabbing her and pulling her under that I feel like are, are if not inspired by at least, I mean, they, they, they could be absolutely stolen from jaws. Yeah. Um, no, I, I thought that too. Her legs kicking. Yeah. That was the other thing that I noticed about this movie in terms of uh, it, it's, it's visual palette was lots and lots of underwater photography in this film. Yeah, cool. and it, it looks good. Crystal Lake plays a role that it has not played in previous films. Yeah, we go under Crystal Lake. We don't, yeah, for a, a lot, you know, which is great. I actually really enjoyed that aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I thought that too, Vic, um, when she's kicking. And, and I thought that was one of the more effective kills in a way because, you know, it, it's just there's something more disturbing about her just being pulled down and we don't know what happened to her, you know? Yeah. And then when he drags her filthy, dead, naked body out of the lake later, and we just get that kind of isolated shot, um, just Jason's pulling her out of the lake. Uh, That's great. I mean, that's the kind of thing that really builds the tension. Agreed. Uh, But back to the guy with the streamers, I just wanted to give his two best lines. When he's covered in the streamers, and he says, King Tut rises from the tomb. And he's walking around and covered in them like, like, you know, in some weird creative state. And then he just says, I know, star mummy. (laughs) (laughs) And the stoner guy says to uh, Robin when they're dancing, you know what I like about you? You hardly sweat, sweat at all. Yes, yes. <laughs> These are genius lines on some yeah. level. They really yeah. are. That is, I agree. That is the strangest line in the entire movie. And I love it. I, I love everything about it. And Eddie has my favorite line, I think. Uh, yeah, even above the others. When Melissa admits that she's not into him... And he's like, I'm going to go get a cold shower. And he says, his parting shot to her, I've got a date with a soap on a rope. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 I was uh, amused when he, uh, he kind of sold the, the experience to himself by going, well, I'm a writer, so I have to handle a lot of rejection. You know, I've been rejected yeah. by some of the biggest science fiction publishers in, in New York. You know, well, uh, no, he and, said he said the continental United States. Oh, right. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> because, you know, Alaska and uh, Hawaii, they didn't reject him. But he's been, doing, he's been doing very well. Yeah. In uh, the, the, the <laughs> South Pacific. 
but yeah, it's I, 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 you know, he he doesn't get mad. He just, uh, you know, kind of takes a step back, and uh, you know, he gets a little pissy with her. But he's also kind of like, okay, how do I survive this emotionally? He's like, well, I'm a writer. I have to swallow a lot of rejection, and uh, you know, but the, this movie's uh, view of what writers look and act like is uh, nothing but pure joy. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, this is we're. Hitting on the things that I love about this movie, while I can absolutely agree as we rip it to shreds on some level, and you know, very little of the criticisms, Mike, that you're throwing at it, would I say, well, no, that's not true. I just love the movie anyway. You know, mm-hmm. it's things like that, and it's when Eddie, the same character, the geeky writer, is um, in the midst of all the signs and the streamers and the gifts and this really elaborate birthday. And he picks up one of them and it's a personal penis enlarger and he pulls it out and it's a magnifying glass. I mean, yeah. come on, this is great stuff here. <laughs> well, it's, almost, yeah. it's almost better that he's in the wake of this rejection. He's just decided to open all of Michael's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I mean, you can talk about Shelley and this character might be the Shelley of this movie and he is annoying but and pathetic but god damn it i like him eddie the geek writer (laughs) i actually found him to be uh closer to crispin glover in four Mm -hmm. than than any other character where Mm -hmm. i i mean i I, yeah he did annoy me way more like crispin glover is just pure joy whereas this guy i'm just like little bit of fingers to chalkboard but he's so fucking weird that i mean he, he does bring like kind of an electric charge to every scene that he's got yeah, he, there's that scene in the, the the breakfast scene when he's raving about some obscure science fiction film, and he's like, "Ben will tell you he watched it with me," and Ben's like, "What? No, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about." He's like, "Oh, I guess it wasn't Ben. I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta go right. Like he had no idea he was gonna be caught in this lie." Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, ben, uh, unfortunately, Ben wasn't given a whole lot to do besides no. to be angry. Like he spends the into, uh, you know, uh, we, we open, you know, his his arc is uh, he's having a tiff with his girlfriend, and she's upset with him because, I, you know, I think I caught it. They were supposed to have a date, and he went and hung out with somebody. Anyways, I think it was Eddie, is mm. what it was. Uh, and there's like, yeah, he went and hung out with Eddie. Anyways. And uh, she's mad at him because he flaked on her date, I guess. That's like practically ADR, you know, like whatever you're picking up there, like it's a conversation while someone else is talking or something, uh, as I recall. Yeah, pretty sure that's exactly the situation. But Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise, like his entire shtick is to just be angry and glower a lot. That was the one thing that didn't land for me was their little micro drama. Like I didn't, it didn't, there wasn't enough there that the the black couple, it didn't, it didn't really work. They had no verisimilitude to them, you know, like they just looked like they had just gone from a casting call on the Cosby show and this was an option for them. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And even when they're in the van and making out and uh, they're going to, playfully jump out and yell surprise and then he's gonna go you know no one's there so he's gonna go quote-unquote get michael like he spends the entire like like, even when he's being playful with her he's like this really angry guy and he's scowling he's just like i'm gonna get him you know just like lighten the fuck up dude what is up with this guy man you know no it felt it it feels very sadly it feels very much like the token black people in the in the movie Mm -hmm. 
Um, again, you get no sense of them having any connection to the other people. I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he makes an appearance until breakfast. Yeah. I feel like when he, sh- he shows up in the morning and I was like, who the, who the fuck is that? Uh, yeah, those characters are just kind of tacked on and thrown yeah. in. So all of these movies eventually get to that point where we're not picking everyone off here and there and no one knows uh, what's going on with the other characters until it's too late. Um, and then we get to like the full on massacre part of the film. What I, I'll just say as a side note, I love that Melissa isn't clued in until the very end <laughs> that anything is yeah. going on. In the scenes leading up to the full on massacre, uh, we get not one, but two tropes with uh, Robin, the redhead. I uh, mm-hmm. when, when she goes looking for the stoner guy. Uh, yeah. Uh, who's also really funny. Just like, I'm going to go get something to eat. And he just kind of wanders off and forgets about her. <laughs> no, but he, the, the wording on that is even great because he says something like Neanderthal hunter gatherer seeks nourishment. Yeah. <laughs> well, then he fall, he falls off the bed while he's trying to put on his pants and says, wow, it's dark in here. Yeah. And yeah, she's yeah. so stoned that she's just endlessly amused by that. You know, I would argue, uh, yeah, it's weirdly heightened, but I don't know that there's not, like little moments of truth or humanity in most of these beats. I mean, I think that there is. Yeah, I agree. You know, if there's one, you know, one superiority that this installment has over six is in six, it it was very like it was trying for this kind of stuff, but it came across as like really arch and artificial and scripty, you Mm -hmm. know, whereas in this, they actually felt like the, you know, there's sharp lines that I wouldn't be surprised, like funny people actually saying in real life. Not only that, but one of the things we've talked about is I know a 65-year-old, you know, guy in New York wrote this in New York City. And this is the first one where I'm like, yeah, I could see some, you know, hotshot 25-year-old screenwriter writing this dialogue. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, so Robin goes looking for the guy, and uh, we get the third cat in the Friday the 13th. And this one, however, in two was underhanded through a window by a grip, and five was shot <laughs> out of a out cannon of a <laughs> right right into her face. And cat then, a pulp. And, yeah, and then clugs its head on the, on the thing. In this case, the cat is just in a closet, uh, and yeah. it's just kind of sitting there, and she opens it up, the cat jumps out. And it's funny because she goes, uh, hey, he doesn't own a cat. Yeah. <laughs> like the cat is just... And then Jason shows up, and... Um, Wait, wait, even before that, like, again, I just like calling attention to these little nuances. She talks to that cat for like a minute and a half, and it's all clearly ad-libbed. And I really like that we linger on that. Yeah. Yeah. Even though though the cat is utterly inexplicable. Like, there's no idea where this cat came from or why it was in the fucking closet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one owns the cat, but somehow it got into the closet, and there—that's where it was. But uh, if you were to codify horror movie tropes, cat in the closet would get its own chapter. Yeah, and uh, by also interestingly enough, uh, when Jason shows up to do her in, she gets thrown out the window. Uh, A a big aspect in four, especially, and in this one again, just like in four, she kind of gets thrown out the window and uh, hits the dirt, and she's just kind of dead. Well, she kind of landed face first from the look of it. <laughs> yeah. Still, I, I took issue with that. I saw that fall and I was like, 
who falls two stories, you know, out of a second story window and just dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, Guys, that, 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 uh, that, that I have to blow your mind on this one. Um, I did a little research or watched a special feature that told me that the window that she is thrown out of is the same window in the same house that they threw the girls out of in Topanga Canyon for part four. Uh They they shot most of this film elsewhere. I believe they shot it in the South, uh, Mm -hmm. which you can kind of tell. Like, it really doesn't feel like New Jersey. It feels more like this kind of swampy... Uh, South Carolina kind of woods, but um, th- they did reshoots or something, and they ended up back at the same location in Topanga Canyon uh, for that particular shot. Of course, and uh, it was like, well, you know, I mean, uh, if we're gonna have this house and this window, we might as well throw a girl out of it. Yeah, and it's a stunt person, and one the actress herself, Robin, claims that it was a stunt man that they threw out, but the director, uh, Beekler, says that it was a stunt woman, at least. Mm. John, you're going to have to edit this out, but I absolutely propose that we have a day involving drinking and then driving to that house in Topanga Canyon, because that's reasonably close to me. Yeah, let's let's work on that. Let's make that happen. (laughs) We'll we'll have an episode from the field. Love it. Love it. So one of the other things when the guy goes off um, before Robin gets killed, when he goes off in search of nourishment, um, I don't know. I'm sure you guys picked this up, but Jason is revealed very subtly in the far corner of the frame when lightning flashes outside the room. Did you guys notice that? I didn't. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, right before Jason closes that distance and and takes him out at the fridge, you can see him standing in the corner. And also, another trope, he cuts the power by tearing it apart with his bare hands in this one. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. true. Could have been a bear. (laughs) Oh, shit, you're right. No bear references, actually, in this one. The first movie was zero bear involvement. That's unfortunate. But we do have a collection of Jason clippings. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah, so I, I, this is another mystery for me, guys. Why does Cruz have a collection of Jason clippings in the desk unless it was her mom's or her, her father's, I mean? Maybe it was the father's because she all, I, I, they also still have his gun mm-hmm. in the desk. You know, he, he, a decade after the guy has died, they're just kind of using his home office. Which is, you know, also like festooned with, uh, you know, there's pictures of this guy all over the place. And they still have his gun just in a drawer. And Mike, I, did you I, notice I, the amount of cobwebs on that photo, though? I, I did, um, I, I did kind of laugh a little bit when uh, Tina pulls out the gun and immediately hands it to Nick. Like, there, there's no yeah. uh, female badassery in this movie. She's like, you know, <laughs> I will give the gun to the man. I almost feel like they were doing that intentionally because really he is um, mostly useless uh, if you think about it. So every time that they have an opportunity to give him something masculine to do, um, and my God, I got sick of him clutching her elbows and shaking her arms and trying to calm her down, which he does at least five times in this film. (laughs) And Cruz does it to her mom uh, at least three times. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think that they did that because, like, if you think about it, she's the only one that can go toe to toe with Jason. And speaking of kind of bullshit stuff, 
uh, Jason so takes it easy on Nick. Like, he has, like, five chances to kill him, and he always does the stupid, like, kind of, I'll just backhand you and forget you. Yeah, yeah there, there was one where it was super blatant as well, uh, yeah. when they fall into, what is it, like, the basement, and yeah. uh, Nick is unconscious, and or, or he's down, and Jason just walks over and steps on him. Just yeah. puts a just puts a boot on his back and just applies pressure. Well, and I, to be uh, fair, he was unconscious. Right. So Jason right. was probably just trying to wake him up. That's true. <laughs> yeah, he was like, "Oh, excuse me, I'm trying to kill you." Excuse yeah, me. you could almost yeah. say that that um, that violated the rule because mm-hmm. Jason was apparently going to kill an unconscious person until she tightens the straps on his mask, which I love. For me, this is the best third act of any of them and it it's because it's so long and it's so action-packed and it's so cool that i really think this is the best third act i would i would concur with that technically the third act starts when cruz uses mrs shepherd as a human shield uh and she she dies uh and then wait which which by the way i mean seals the deal on his villainy like that is the apex of the point at which and like I said, you, I don't think you can point to a moment in any other Friday the 13th film in which a character behaves that despicably. Yeah, because like that is so beyond the pale. Uh, yeah. She called him a coward before that, and then, you know, we didn't even need that because he mm-hmm. proves it with his actions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mom's death uh, was the one death in this movie that had a little bit of weight for me, and um also, when uh, Tina has a vision of her impending demise, uh, in fact, uh, when she's driving along, yeah. and she has and she has that vision of Jason killing her mom in the middle of the road that causes her to swerve and crash, that was actually the one beat in the whole movie that, for me, was actually like kind of creepy. I, I it was Jason at the bottom of the lake. I think it was an awesome image, and that one actually I mean, it felt like like almost like a Blair Witch kind of a thing, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like you know just the you know, we have a gruesome murder occurring, like, just on the edge of the headlights, you know, la, la, la. And, uh, I, I, and that, that was cool. I like that. I'm just like, The right. director said that what he wanted that to be originally was the little boy Jason from the lake holding Pamela's head. And then Pamela's head would talk to uh, Tina. Wow! Yeah, yeah, I, I oh think that would have been awesome. That would have been <laughs> fucking amazing. Holy <laughs> shit. Tying well, it into the larger mythology. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I that that would have been amazing, but what we got was still pretty good. By the way, there's a severed head floating around in this movie. Some guy's severed head. Do you guys know who that was? No, I could no, not. I, I I never could figure that out. I, 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 I thought it was David's, but we certainly don't see him decapitated. Um, well, I assume... was David the guy whose face was split in the middle with the axe? <laughs> No, he's we the, see his the stoner. Oh, the stoner! But he was stabbed in the chest, and then he just falls down. It wasn't. I. I'm trying to remember this. When when I watched it the second time, I was watching it. It definitely wasn't Eddie because we pick Eddie up. We we pick yeah. up Eddie's body later. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's under the coffee table or something. Exactly. And so I yeah. feel like David was the only the only head that was not accounted for in my yeah. uh, in my second viewing. So I, uh, I guess that Jason stabbed him, let him fall to the floor, and then decapitated him. No, I, 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 I you know, something nibbling at the back of my head. I, I seem to recall there was a beat where he kind of golf swings the machete and takes off someone's head. 
I just can't uh, figure out who that was. Yeah, I, I, I you know, but I'm kind of connecting with that. When he finally gets into a full-on fight with Tina, uh, some of the shit that she throws at him made me laugh out loud. Uh, when when yeah. she throws a giant pink couch at him, that was hilarious. Oh, and not when, even close to as good as when she uses the telekinesis to lift a planter that has yeah. the severed head yeah, in yeah, it yeah, and throws yeah. it at Jason. And the head is facing <laughs> Jason the whole time as it's flying through the air. So it has the effect of almost headbutting him. Yeah, oh, dude, yeah. I, 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 and that shit was making me laugh out loud. The precursor to that bit is she backs. They have they have the encounter in the kitchen. I forget. She does something sort of telekinetic. She backs into the living room and with her telekinesis closes the doors. And yeah. I think my favorite shot in the whole movie, and and credit for this goes to Kane Hodder, is Jason walking through those doors. He sort of throws them open after they've yeah. been telekinetically closed. And you get this I – mean, I heard this internal monologue from Jason that was like, all right, I don't know what's going on here, but, but I, don't I don't like, like it. it. And yeah, this is, and this right. The way he throws right. those doors open and walks in, he's like, "All right, what the fuck?" See that—that's uh, yeah. the power of the performance, Vic. And the note that I wrote down while I was re- watching that sequence is, "quote unquote," Jason gets really annoyed with her. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But who's yeah. ever annoyed Jason in the last? Yeah. You know, in in all six movies preceding this. Yeah. Um, you know, he's always in control. Shotgun, and he's not annoyed. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah. The, the annoyance is coming from confusion because I, I he, he's never faced it. He, he, you know, I mean, there there is like the sense of like, hey, wait a minute, I'm the supernatural guy here. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, know, yeah. But, His performance is is gr- definitely the best performance because it's an actual performance uh, mm-hmm. for Jason. I mean, of all the Jasons, this is the best performance because you get all kinds of like little. Um, you know, facial expressions once the mask is off uh, that are indicating like this personality, even though he doesn't talk like Jason has a very clear personality in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and- I, when, when the mask comes off and we just get uh evil skull face, I, you know, he moves, you know, the, the, the creature effects have the jaw move around a lot. So, so yeah. he's always kind of gnashing his teeth and glaring at people. We have the first introduction of the supernatural outside of Jason. Yeah. And yeah. that that matters. I mean that watching this and thinking about the way that I watched it when I was a teenager, there's this feeling of, yeah, get it. Like there there's, mm-hmm. there's a, we have an actual foe. We have someone who can actually stand up to Jason for once. That when he's annoyed, or again, when you get to him when she's going to drop the roof on him just a few minutes after these beats we've been talking about. And Mike, like you said, he's, he's kind of looking up like, wait, wait, what the hell is going on? It's, she actually gets Jason on his heels. And I feel like we've never seen Jason on his heels. And when you're watching it from a, a, a more, the more visceral perspective of being a, a, you know, a teenager or a tween or, or, or whatever, right, right. that, that gets to you. You get excited by that. There, you know, when she, I very yeah. distinctly remember when she starts tightening the straps on his uh, uh, mask uh, and watching him sort of groan in pain, you're kind of going, yeah, all right, somebody can somebody can finally throw some punches. You know what this is like? It, and you just said throw some punches. This is like Mike Tyson, you know? Yeah. And even though you absolutely enjoy watching him demolish dudes in 17 seconds, 
Like, how can you not root for the person that has Mike Tyson on the ropes, you know? And I think that this movie handles that really well because I was watching it the second time kind of wondering, you know, this beat is Jason getting his ass kicked. You know, that's like what you would – the log line for this beat. And yet I think the film does a fantastic job of still making him seem really fucking cool even while like he's, you know, reacting the way that Mike said, you know, like to these sort of – you know, maybe it's like for him, it's bee stings, but it's like, I don't, this doesn't happen to me is how mm-hmm. he's reacting to it. Well, yeah, and, I, I, I dig, I, I really enjoyed the entire sequence. And uh, I, but, you know, at, at the very top of it, when uh, she, you know, commands the evil dead trees to wrap him up. Yeah. And then, and then tosses the, uh, you know, the, the electric thing into the puddle. I mean, of course it's not going to kill him, but it's just like, I mean, this is the first time that you've seen like, you know, it's not like the girl in three who just kind of like whacks him in the head with the axe. I, I, I and in this one, it's like I mean, he's he's getting punched up, man. You know, when it's geek points or like just big moments in franchise history, like I just will never forget watching this movie for the first time. And like Vic was alluding to, you know, just kind of cheering in the theater when that stuff was happening and thinking that this is amazing. And I still feel that way today watching it. And that's why I love this portion of the movie so much and i think that the effects are very solid for all of these things like even when like she just makes the uh light fixture hit him in the head which on some level is somewhat ridiculous because like what's it made of but when it knocks him out and he falls like a tree and crashes through the staircase um and lets out that big groan and everything like there's just something really cool about that Earlier, I had pointed out that I wasn't super crazy about how the movie looked, uh, how some aspects were shot, but it feels like the movie's kind of saving all all of its juice for this one sequence because it looks great. The effects are fantastic. It's directed really well. Like, the blocking is really fun. Yep. You know, so it's like I had yeah. that same thought, Mike, because this budget was two point eight million, and the last one was actually three. And mm-hmm. I would say that I feel that this movie, because there's so few locations in it, and there's just a lot of like running from one house to the next, or the same, you know, hundred yards of woods, that it's like super low budget up until this point, and then they spend like one point five million dollars on everything else that happens. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of like why I, I, I this. This is, you know, the, the the big thing that we have to offer with this movie. Let's make the most of it. And if that means that we have to plod through an hour of people wa- wandering around, you know, the same patch of woods over and over and saying stupid shit, then, yeah, all right, well, whatever. You know, it's like, so long right. as the psychic shit is cool, then we're fine. <laughs> right, right. And that is expensive, you know, so you got to save money for that. So Cruz is, uh, you know, his coup de grace must be mentioned. And I'm I have mixed feelings about it because there's things I love about that sequence. Um, it's very satisfying when you hear that motor that start to rev. It just boom, boom, and and the camera's on Cruz, and he slowly, ever so slowly, <laughs> registers the sound, and you just know, oh, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for, you know. And he turns around to face Jason and talk about good shots. When Jason is running towards the camera with that saw blade thrust out in front of him, and you know it's for Cruz, that is huge, dude. You can't tell me that's not a very satisfying thing. 
Yeah, uh, that's one of the other firsts. Is uh, I think this is. I'm pretty sure that this is the first time that Jason has used, uh, you know, something that requires a motor or some mm-hmm. power. You know, I mean, in five, a woman attacks him with uh, with a chainsaw, but he just kind of, you know, takes it away from her. You know, uh, he doesn't one, yeah. uh, commandeer it. I, I was amused by the fact that um, it took him three tries, took him three pulls to get the the thing started. <laughs> Yeah. Like, uh, even for Jason Voorhees, uh, mechanics are <laughs> fucked up around Crystal Lake. The curse of Crystal Lake is still in effect. Yeah. Wouldn't that be hilarious if we have in some scene, like, uh, Jason is driving a car and his car breaks down? <laughs> <laughs> Jason's, like, with the hood up, like, fuming yeah. over the, over the you know, he's yeah. putting water in the radiator. Yeah. Pamela's head is sitting in the passenger seat going, what's taking so long? (laughs) (laughs) This would be a fun short. I'll fucking kill you. You understand? (laughs) (laughs) Also, Cruz is so out of shape. Like, he's he's so pathetic in that sequence as a designated Jason victim. Like, you know, usually you have people giving this quasi-heroic effort to run away or something, and he's huffing and puffing and leaning on a tree. And, and again, Jason comes up behind him, and he doesn't realize that Jason is there for a really long time. And, 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 and so this is where my mixed feelings come in. It's so neutered that, like, the chainsaw going into him is not even on screen at all and there's no yeah. gore and it's a very lame kill to be honest yeah, it, it is i i mean it, you said you they put so much juice into setting up that thing yeah. that you're really thinking that he's going to lean in and like you know saw his head off or something like that and uh in terms of how it plays out i mean jason just kind of thrusts it in his general direction and he goes ah and we cut away and he's just kind of dead and it's like yeah, I mean, ah. we can't blame the movie because they shot it i mean i've even seen the the footage of his intestines getting caught in the chainsaw and you know it's just fucking mp double a well and his performance too that moment when he kind of looks up and you can tell that he knows jason's behind him it's yeah. one of those moments that you just don't get from every actor in a friday the 13th movie yeah, uh, it's very it's very well done, and he turns around and sees Jason. And I agree it, that they've spent this much time setting up this character to get his comeuppance, and his comeuppance is is underwhelming to say the least. But I, obviously, is. yes, the the and you can tell when you watch it, you can tell that it's been edited to death by the MPAA. It's it's really too bad, it is. given <laughs> given the other things that we're allowed to get away with in films. Well, I mean, like this this series, like one of the things that I'm realizing as we do this is that uh, it had the scarlet letter on it, you know? I mean, it was like um, the backlash that the Hostel movies uh, may have incurred at some point, but, you know, Saw and Hostel are infinitely gorier than these movies. But in that time, there was sort of a panic and a... Republican hysteria about this kind of thing. And these movies are just edited to the um, a really extreme degree. But I do want to give props out to Terry Kaiser. Uh, the performance of Dr. Cruz, I think, is uh, quite notable. So, okay, uh, very end of it. I want to say Melissa's end uh, deserves note. Uh, one last thing for her, her dialogue. They tell her, Melissa, stay with us. And she goes, not my style. That's yeah. pretty awesome. 
and she finally loses her temper. Like she's always been not like getting upset about any of these setbacks. And finally she goes, fuck you and fuck you too. And, you know, like she, she just like shows that degree of humanity that like, all right, she knows she's not going to get this guy. And I think that that's a really nice end to her um, storyline. I agree. Although she, she doesn't express when, when Nick shows up and says, you know, all right, look, we got to go. Like, you don't understand this. Michael's dead. People are dead. We've got to go. And he's holding a gun. And she's just like, yeah, but you know, I got to go. Like, I think she she says, I'm going to go to bed. Yeah, exactly. The fact that he's carrying a gun should lend some sort of credence to you. You shouldn't even say, like, where did you get the gun? Good point. Yeah, she 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 does not react to uh, uh, the expression of danger at all. You know, there's a guy running around; he's murdering all of us, and I have a gun in my hand. And la la, she's like, "I'm going to bed." (laughs) (laughs) One thing we skip, which we can't, is there's a tableau in this one, Uh, and Jason's tableau is uh, the guy that got his axe split uh, face, uh, which was dubbed Coochie Face on the production, by the way, which I think is uh, appropriate. He's hanging upside down from a tree with ropes now. Apparently Jason used some ropes, which is interesting, and he nailed uh, the geeky girl to the tree. And then the nude girl is here, and the party favor in the eye girl, Kate, is here. And he's just kind of, you know, the usual stack of bodies, but we've got to have a tableau, so I thought I should mention it, that there's a, there's a tableau in the film. Well, let, let, let's talk about the very, very end where dad okay. comes back. Okay. Wait, so dad comes back. Wait, let's let's back up just a bit because I do have one of my major quibbles with the film. They get out of the house right before it explodes. And is there any – I'm curious if you guys noticed. Is there any explanation for the explosion? Like is that just, no. oh, the gas exploded? No, I mean, maybe there's a lot of gasoline in there. Um, no, just, it's, it's ludicrous. Nick, yeah, Nick I, literally it, it, says, we have to hit the deck. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I laughed out loud at that line. Yeah, he as, goes, as though he's anticipating that every house fire ends with a massive explosion. So, again, we're overcompensating um, for Nick being essentially useless in this situation. So this yeah. is one of those beats where we're like a manly guy is like, hit the deck. Yeah. Um, but this is one of the the worst instances of, of framing and, and, you know, expecting audiences to buy this because they're at the end of a pier and Nick sits up and all of a sudden Jason is there. Like he's, well, this he's is Je- Jason's teleportation. Exactly. We talking about. Walk yeah. down to the end of the pier without anybody noticing. Um, it, it's it, it, that spatially was more absurd than anything else in the in the movie, and really bothered me. Yeah, uh, lots of lots of teleportation in this one. Yeah. Lots and lots. Yeah, I, I you know, Vicky brought up earlier that uh, you know, Jason has a presence. He'll show up, and people will run away, and he just kind of wanders after them, and uh, inevitably catches up. You know. By the way, um, your girl Robin, uh, Mike, uh, if you want to catch up on her, you just want to mm-hmm. rent the series Vice Academy because oh, she oh, is in part three, part four, 
Anne Part Five, and her character's name is Candy. So you oh, can boy, and and six I'm... as well. Part six. You can thank me later, my friend. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get my ass down to Ken's World of Video. I'm gonna pick up all those VHS tapes and their clamshell boxes. <laughs> She's also my landlord, actually. I don't know if you guys know. <laughs> yeah, <still> mine too. <laughs> oh, that is too funny. Um, she was also in Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. So, um, I have seen that movie. Yeah, she's hmm. got some serious uh, street cred, man. Well, I mean, so, kind of like, like your red-headed landlord. You know, she's in, in a sprinkling of uh, you know, sequels of other franchises. Yeah, well, my landlord is back in my good graces now that she's cashing my uh, rent checks again. So uh, that's good. Um, one last random thing, and then it's just like the very, very end, last shot of the film. Uh, when Jason follows uh, Nick and Tina up the stairs, there's an inexplicably locked door at the top of the stairs. Yeah. Towards them. I, I, I rolled my eyes at that shit. What like, is oh, that? Yeah, yeah it, it was funny because I mean, apparently in that house, that's that's all there is. It's just a short hallway with a locked door at the end of it. <laughs> These are the things that make this film, in a way, again, like, that's why I love this movie, is that it's jam-packed with things that are... Absurd- yeah. Yeah, absurdities, uh, intentional and otherwise. Yeah, it's it's not mediocre. It's it, it's extreme. You know, it's extremely good and it's extremely bad, and it's all just very um, memorable and fun. At the very beginning of the movie, uh, she kills her father uh, inadvertently with her psychic powers because he was being a dick and she got angry at him. And uh, at the end of the film, it looks like Jason Voorhees is going to finally uh, kill her when uh, she cries out. And uh, her father, who apparently they never fished him out of the water when he died, <laughs> uh, but he comes springing up out of the water. And, well, wait, uh, grabs, I will grabs- say I- – I will say, Mike, that the interpretation of that actually, if he was a zombie, then Mm. I would say they never fished him out of the water. But the fact that he looks basically the same, except that he's dirty, more implies that he's a ghost, which I actually think is better in a way. Well, I I, more logical. I mean, if we're going to go all the way back to the beginning uh, in which uh, zombie Jason pops out at the end of one and drags her into the water, I mean, uh, it's, it's shown that that's a dream sequence. But, you know, again, for the first time, uh, we, we have a trope that ordinarily is given to only our villains. And in this case, it's given to our heroes. In, that, in, in this case, being someone leaping out of the water and grabbing someone and dragging them under the water. In a way, that's a direct mirror to part one right one two you know i i it's a you know we're calling back to you know the earliest days of this franchise where someone comes out of the water grabs you you get dragged underneath kicking screaming but this time who's doing the grabbing is a heroic ghost getting his redemption beat and uh who's getting dragged and that's mr jay Voorhees himself you know, so. you have to wonder, though, like when she was initially summoning her dad and she got Jason instead, where was dad like at Starbucks or I mean, what, what was he doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I, if, if, if we establish, if we tell the audience at the very end of the movie, oh, yeah, yeah, if she calls out to him and, you know, he'll appear, then it's like, well, what the fuck happened an hour ago? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going back to my earlier uh, my earlier joke about the the bodies clearly littering the bottom of of uh, Crystal Lake. I mean, 
I'm sure the cops show up and they're like, oh, he, he's down there. Well, all right. I guess he's yeah. with anybody else. We'll just we'll just keep moving. I uh, think uh, all, all of these undead characters sit around in a, in, a, <laughs> in a little waiting room at the bottom of the lake watching TV. And, uh, you know, <laughs> they're, they're... Well, I mean, it's funny because that's a joke. Like we, we talked a lot about the evil of Crystal Lake and whatever else. Like if you were if you were a bickering married couple, uh, you know, and you were and you were trying to rekindle your marriage at Crystal Lake, like the wife is probably going to murder the husband and throw him in the lake. Like, you know, it's, it's entirely possible in terms of the, the overall picture that, that we've painted of crystal Lake, that lots of people probably get murdered there just by virtue of this lake and it's, it's evil power. I mean, even what's fascinating about that Vic is that when this film was made, the TV show was already on the air Mm -hmm. Friday the 13th, the series, which, basically was looking for some way to uh you know have a crime of the week scenario and weirdly enough they go into like some antique shop where like all the curios in this uh place have a story when this this concept that you just expressed was right there on the table like if you were actually going to do a tv show it would be crystal lake that would be the TV show and yeah. how it infects in different ways everyone who comes in contact with Crystal Lake. Yeah. I, you, one has to almost wonder how many people died before 1958, was it? Yeah. When Pamela, Pamela first killed those two. So. Oh, by the way, like I read – there's some really fun articles on these fan sites, which we'll probably mention more moving forward. But one of the articles that I read – uh, tried to put the timeline into some perspective. And if you look at each of the time jumps and everything that, that occur, um, like actually part two was supposedly actually in 1985. So only two years before this movie. So this movie, theoretically, like we're already well into the mid nineties because <laughs> they've been pushing themselves you know, 10 to 15 years ahead of where they actually are when the movies come out. And it's all very, you know, um, it doesn't track, like, right. you know, long story yeah, right. short. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, Dad dies when she's a little girl, and uh, one would have to assume that at least 10 years goes by before she comes back. And uh, Well, he's, I, I, he's greatly deteriorated, Jason is, uh, yeah. by the time we see him come out of the lake. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, we have to tack on you know a bunch of extra years for people to hang out at this lake again after multiple massacres. <laughs> you know, right. Like, for for it to be at all viable for people to come hang out at this lake anytime, you know, we have to that's, assume that's like twenty, thirty years in the future. It's actually interesting. You don't think about that with in terms of Tommy in Part Six, clearly taking his boat out over the corpse of her father. <laughs> on his way to drown Jason. Right. Um, huh. These, yeah. these things all happened within, you know, a couple of yards of one another. Uh, well, I don't know that it's entirely clear what the timing is there. I mean, like... Um, it's not. They're just telling a story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of ludicrous. But, um, so, yeah, all of this ends in a direct callback to the first, I would say, three movies because we have Tina being loaded into an ambulance, which is the way 
all of the movies ended. And it's an old ambulance, even. I would say it's from the 1970s. Yeah, uh, it's, even... it's very, yeah, it's very specifically mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the station wagon variety of ambulance that seems to pop up in these movies a lot. And almost to acknowledge that, they have like a more modern ambulance to the left in the shot. So it's like, yeah, we know that it's 1988, but the ambulance that they put uh, Nick and Tina into is an old ambulance, which is very much um, the same one that heroines were loaded into previously. And what's kind of cool, and again, one of the things that I love about this movie versus others is that Nick asks her, he freaks out, he suddenly wakes up, and he's like, where's Jason? And she looks at him, and she's like, we took care of it. And, like, there's something more definitive and cool about that than, like, the other girls at the end of these movies are gibbering, and they've lost their minds, and, you know, there's something pathetic about them. But this girl is more like, yeah, you know, dad and I, we sorted that shit out. Yeah. Well, it establishes what's, what is exceptional about this film, which is that Tina is a real antagonist for Jason. Yeah. Um, in a way that we haven't had before. And yeah, so at the end of it, she does have her wits about her and she is able to be even mildly clever in the ambulance yeah. uh, uh, following all this. And I would dare say we never get that again. I mean, other than Freddie, you know, like I don't think that anyone really challenges Jason the way that Tina does. Yeah, and uh, I, the, the entire uh, psychic thing is kind of dropped from the mythology after this film. I, I, I in, in some ways, uh, the, this one feels almost like an anomaly within the series. It, it's very much, oh yeah, it's the one with the psychic check. Did Paramount discuss bringing her back in the future, or you know, why or why that did not happen? Uh, TBD. It definitely was um, an interesting point in the franchise's history. And our next one, boys, is the final Paramount installment of the entire series. So, That's right. Um, and it's um, one thing I'll say about it is that uh, in this movie, Jason puts his fist through someone's chest, and yes. in that one, he knocks a guy's head off. So, yeah. you gotta love that. He's super strong. Yep. Right. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, I'll see you soon. You got happy it. Fr- happy Friday the 13th, guys. Talk to you later. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Adios. Bye. This is the one you've been waiting for. What's happening to me? Your psychokinesis and these delusions. No, I you're thought. not listening to me! The one you've been asking for. Hey, T. <laughs> Isn't this the way they wear their jackets back in the metal hospital? Concentrate. Concentrate, Tina. The one you've been dying for. You people give me the creeps. Okay, you big hunk of a man. Come and get me. Jason Ah! is back. But this time... Someone is waiting.
the 13th, part 7, The New Blood, opening Friday, May 13th, the deadliest day of the year. There goes the neighborhood. 